This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with the Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. And despite my croaky voice, we're pulling on through. Here's what we have coming up for you today. Ultimately, it's not it's not the mountains' fault. You know, like the mountains aren't out to get you. One reason why they're so awe-inspiring is because they are also quite dangerous. Balancing risks, living with guilt. I meet the multi-sport athlete whose life changed forever when he went out skiing with his wife. Plus, she told me that there's one guy that just poured some Bailey's cream in there, and they were doing shots. Ollie Peart gets stuck into human body composting, and four new ambassadors take their titles home. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and we had an enjoyably mixed response to my interview with Jack Bath last month. Some thought, like listener Daniel, that he was, quote, a whinge bag. Uh, Others, like Nadia P., who counts yesterday as one of her favourite movies, says how he was treated by Hollywood puts a dark cloud over this extremely entertaining and enjoyable script. Intriguingly, uh, Man Fan Dean got in touch too to say, Ollie, a friend of mine was the original author of... And then he mentions an extremely well-known movie from a major Hollywood studio, which I'm not going to repeat because our lawyers are not up to that. Um, But in his case, says Dean, he never received any acknowledgement nor money. I've shared your episode with him to let him know the injustice that continues to be out there. Hmm. Uh, Duncan in Vancouver, Canada as well, says, Ollie, I really appreciated how you talked about NFTs in the zeitgeist last month, especially the environmental concerns related to them. One thing that you didn't talk about so much was the accusation that they are basically pyramid schemes where NFT buyers hype up crypto to raise the value and sell to others to cover their own costs. I'd love to hear you discuss multi-level marketing scams on the show. Well, Duncan... Thank you for the thought. Uh, man fan Kate Hassel as well, who got in touch with a similar idea. Thank you too. Watch this space, he says, as he strokes his beard mysteriously. Now, the eagle-eared amongst you probably noticed the absence of any mention of Alex Fox in the intro. Uh, that is because she's not in this month's episode. Sorry, Fox fans. She has come down with some terrible lurgy. It's not COVID, she says, but it's as bad as when she had COVID. Worse, she said, than when she had COVID. So I didn't think it was right to force her to talk to us about clitoral hood piercings. Uh, We'll be doing that next month instead. Uh, So in the meantime, best wishes to Alex who I I know also, hilariously, since moving to New York, has had an immersive theatre injury. Only Alex Fox. She's a parody of herself. Uh, And this month, at the end of the show, where we usually do the foxhole, there is um, an exciting last-minute substitution. I will be appointing four new ambassadors. Count them. Will you be amongst their number? Stay tuned to the end to find out. Um, Some listener thanks now. Shannon Drayton-Taylor, Adam Misrahi, Harry Hansard and Ollie Whiteman. Ollie Whiteman. That is very nearly a great name you've got there, Sonny. Uh, You are our regular beer money donors. Thank you so much. And thank you as well to Caton Gates as well. Caton, I noticed you just quietly, of your own accord, logged into your 
account and upped your donation frequency from annual to monthly. These things pop up on my dashboard. I do see them. I appreciate it. I see you, Caton. Thank you. Um, Help us keep the lights on. We make this show for you, paid for by listeners like you and some advertising. If you love the show, then buy us a beer. Monmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Um, And thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Packed Coffee. Have you done it yet? Have you got yourself that free V60 brewing kit? If you haven't, why not? Don't you love delicious coffee? Do you hate yourself? With Pact, there are always over 15 different brews to choose from, and you can rest assured that they pay above the fair trade base price. And it's great coffee. They also do a great decaf, by the way, um, from Buenos Aires, I believe, which is my afternoon tipple at the moment Uh, and just for listening to this podcast you will get a free v60 kit worth 11 pounds go to packedcoffee.com that is p-a-c-t coffee.com create your flexible coffee subscription and then enter the voucher code man at checkout that is m-a-n-n and if you're a new customer then you will get that free v60 brewing kit it's amazing it's like a cafetiere for lazy people i love it for speciality coffee through your letterbox don't wait go to packedcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription now. Uh, Right, coming up today, you will learn a novel use for alfalfa, you will learn the population figure for Canmore, British Columbia, and you'll learn why you shouldn't keep an engagement ring in your board shorts. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist with Manscaped, your trends tested with Ollie Peart. And Ollie, I know you've recently uh, been interviewing a man fan. I have. Yeah, a very prestigious man fan. They're all prestigious to us, but yes. The most successful British Winter Olympian, Lizzie Yarnold. She's got two gold medals, for goodness sake. I mean, she's, uh, you know, famous for the, the skeleton, which is where you go head first down a slippery pipe. I mean, all Winter Olympics are a bit mad, aren't they? If you didn't know there was a great heritage in the sport. Mm. You know, if you didn't know that skiing was a thing, if you saw someone skiing, you'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but ske- skeleton, the one that she does in particular, chucking yourself headfirst down a luge, which would break your neck, is uh, unique. Yeah, it's no surprise that actually the, the event itself was invented by a bunch of drunk Victorians in Switzerland. Anyway, I saw that she came on your other podcast, The Apre, which is your kind of winter sports podcast, but... Um, I don't listen, Ollie, because I'm not interested in sport. But I have met Lizzie Arnold before, and she's great, isn't she? Yeah, did she did she, she say to you that she listens to the Modern Man when she when you were speaking? She, she, she did. Does. She did. She said she listens to the Modern Man, but she goes, um, "Yeah, but you haven't you haven't done a series in a while, have you?" Oh dear. I was like, "Oh, this is embarrassing." Yeah, we haven't yeah. stopped <laughs> since 2015. So, uh, right. I mean, you know what happens is sometimes some of the pod apps, if you don't refresh it. You know, if you don't have like the latest three episodes on there, it just it asks you, doesn't it? Do you want to unsubscribe from this thing? Mm. Yeah, sort it out, Yarnold. Right. Well, time to uh, catch up with your challenge from last month, which came from Katie, who's a British expat now living in America, Washington State, isn't it? Washington State. I, I'm asking you because the challenge was basically, would you like to call me and talk to me about my job? <laughs> <laughs> so she works in, is it human composting? It's called, but with green funerals. And her challenge to you was, please find out all about green funerals, at which I'm the expert. Yeah, she works for a company in Washington State, who are the first company in the world to compost human bodies. They may be the first to officially declare that's the case, mm. but when you bury someone in the ground, don't they decompose anyway? I mean, you know, wasn't the first company to do human composting the first person to bury someone in the ground? It's slightly different. Because when you bury somebody in the ground, you bury every element, and that includes 
all of their toxins and heavy metals, things like hip replacements, if you've had chemo, radiation therapy, those kinds of things, all of that goes into the soil. We are, as humans, not that good for the environment. We're full of all kinds of stuff. Fillings, for example. Cremation is not particularly good for the environment either, thinking about it, is it? They use... For cremation, in the United States this is, I'm not fully sure how much it compares with the UK, but I know that the system that they use is very similar, 30 gallons of petrol per cremation. And that produces around 500 pounds. Notice how I'm in Imperial here. 500 pounds of (laughs) CO2 into the atmosphere as well. So cremation, no, it's not good for the environment in any way. And I guess the traditional alternative to that, you know, you think about people in the Ganges in India or whatever, where people get covered in spices and things, but basically it's just their body, isn't it? And a candle that gets set on a raft. But then the problem with that, I suppose, is that bits of them end up in the river that people then bathe in and and eat fish from. Yeah, and the idea of this process is to try and make it as, as green and as environmentally friendly as possible and the only byproduct is useful nutrient-rich compost that you can then mix in to soil and grow things with okay so talk us through the process then if if you do sign up to have your body composted what what does katie's company do well the first thing they do is go and pick you up so they got a a minivan where they'll go and get your body wherever you are electric i hope (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I should check, shouldn't I? And then they uh, they take you back uh, to their facility and bathe you on a uh, a table, sort of a metal table. She showed me this on on Zoom on our conversation on Zoom. It's like a metal table with a. You a, have the weirdest zooms. I know. I've had some weird zooms, and it's uh, got a, like a place where you put you put their neck and you rest their neck back, and then they they wash wash the body, and it's a ritualistic process. But they actually invite the family if they want to to come and do that as well. Is that partly because, I wonder, there isn't a funeral element coming later? There isn't the bit where you say goodbye? Yeah, at various steps, they've created different sort of rituals based on this process because it is new and it is different. It's not the same as a normal funeral. And those happen at different stages. So this is the first part, if you like. And then they um, dress the corpse in, in a compostable garment. And she showed me that as well. And it's like, um, it's almost like that fuzzy felt stuff you used to get as a as a kid you know do you know the stuff i mean it's a bit okay. like that it's kind of like cotton yeah. wool kind of stuff uh, and then mm. they've got these massive what look like chest freezers they're huge they're like big boxes and they lay the bottom of uh, the box with alfalfa which i didn't know what it is but it's kind of like a type of straw it's kind of the same stuff you'd put in like a a rabbit hutch <laughs> and then other straw and they put all of this in the bottom and then they'll put the body on top. And at that point, they ask if the family want to also see see the body at that stage as well. So sort of like an open casket kind of thing. And, you know, do you want to do you want to see that bit and see your your relative or your friend at that stage? And then the next bit is putting the same kind of material, but then on top. And at that point as well, the relatives or the friends can put other compostable things in there with them like little mementos it could be flowers she told me that there's one guy that just poured some bailey's cream in there and they were doing shots and that kind of thing and then they close the lid and this is the bit that kind of feels a bit industrial but the way that they've done it it is quite nice but i'm going to make it sound horrible they get the box and they stick it on a shelf in a warehouse (laughs) 
it's right. literally like it's literally just put on a shelf in the warehouse that is a warehouse you would feel freaky about renting afterwards isn't it it is yeah you know it's if anything weird. ever happened to her business you would keep that from the tenants looking around do you know what i mean i feel like a realtor would fudge that yeah, it was just used for storage. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, storage mainly. We, we, we were having our Zoom conversation and then, and I said, um, oh, so where, you know, where do you keep the bodies when they're going through this process? And she said, well, I'll show you. And she picked up her computer and she turned it around and she was like on a mezzanine in this warehouse and turned it around. And there were maybe sort of 20 of these boxes. And, oh, I, and I just... Like a car showroom behind her with all her stock. And I said, oh, so were there, um, there are people in there then? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take you to have a look. Not at the people. I just hasten to add. So she right. t- took me downstairs, yeah. and um, there was um, a-, a veteran there. So one of them had a, a- an American flag over them, uh, and one other person that was there had a um, a dog blanket from their dog was on top of the box, and they had a picture put stuck on the side and that kind of thing. So it was a really, really lovely sort of feel to it. Oddly, even though there was a forklift truck in the background going. Dee, dee, you know like reversing backwards but they were all there and they they had their own sort of like personal effects around them yeah like a tomb meets costco yeah yeah but i imagine that the smell would be an issue well they have an air system which they call octopus they call it which is it filters air in and out part of that is is part of the process but it also stops it from smelling too much they have to also make sure that they rotate them every so often so that the moisture is evenly distributed throughout the box basically so the composting and the the decomposition happens properly and so there's no like active agent in there i mean you said that there's this straw stuff at the bottom but there's nothing i mean obviously there's nothing chemical because that would be against the principle in the first place to do something ecological but i'm just trying to work out what the difference would be between this really and just digging a hole in the ground and sticking someone in it under a tree or something, you know, a sort of more traditional green burial. So around well, around halfway through the process, what they'll do is they'll remove the stuff which is bad for the environment, hip replacements, fillings and that kind of stuff. And they'll take the bones out as well. And then they grind the bones. That down. is a job that you can't train for, isn't it? <laughs> you just, I mean, maybe you just get used to it, but I just that sounds really grim. It's one thing, isn't it, to excavate a body, you know, ten years down the track, and you've got a load of bones. But it, but that's so what is that like? Six months in? It's sixty days is the entire process. Really? Oh wow! So after thirty days, after you've, thirty all the, days, all your fillings yeah. have come out. Everything's wow. yeah. Because actually, so what happens? You're talking about the active ingredient. You're the active ingredient. So the way that it happens yes. naturally is that your your gut bacteria basically will be the thing that starts eating you up. And the temperature inside the box gets up to 70 degrees Celsius. It gets really hot because that it's a, you know, that's, that's how intensive that process is. So then they, they remove all of the bad stuff, basically. They sort of filter it all out and get rid of it. And then they'll mix the bone back into the uh, compost and then leave it for another, another 30 days. And what do they do with the bad stuff, quote unquote? Because if the whole point is to stop it leaking into the earth... I mean, surely it still goes to landfill and then it leaks into the earth. Yeah, well, recycle it mostly. So things like heavy metals and things like that, they'll be recycled and reused. So you think about like hip replacements and stuff like that, melted down and that kind of thing. That's what they do. The idea of opening up a chest freezer in a warehouse mm. and like rummaging around to find the bits to be recycled, that's the bit that freaks me out. It's not the idea of being the dead body. Like as the dead body, this sounds like a reasonable process. Sounds like quite a good idea. It's everyone else having to deal with it. Like, you know, if you just bury or cremate someone, it's done, isn't it? Yeah. And and actually, Katie used to work in other funeral services. She worked in a, in a crematorium. 
But what she said about it is that it, it makes you more in touch with death as a part of life, if you like. With with cremation, you get ha- handed an urn at the end of it, and that's kind of it. Whereas this, as a as a ritual, if you like, it's, it is much more visceral, and it is, you know, you're you're much more part of that process of that sort of transition, if you like, from from uh, life into death. And she said a lot of people find that really a, a nice way to to deal with the loss of a loved one you know it's anecdotally she has no sort of like proof of this but people seem to be able to deal with the grief better because they've they've gone through it with them they're going through that process and then they're transitioning into becoming part of the earth again and it's a really lovely thought you know it's it, it's yeah. you know literally the end product which she showed me is compost like it is really good i'm gonna pay 10 quid a bag for this <laughs> <laughs> down at the green ten quid, ten quid, ten quid a bag. How did you like compost? Know, is that really wow? Is that that's the quality stuff? Is it, Ollie? That's how you'd value me. Hey, man, I, would I, I be worth I, ten I bought, pounds at the garden centre? Jesus, ten quid for a bag of compost is quite a lot, Ollie. You know, I, I'm not. Yeah, oh, it's the premium stuff. I'm premium not doubting stuff. you. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying. I'd pay. I'd pay good good money for some human compost. You can't buy it, by the way. What? What then? No, you can't buy it. So what happens? I mean, does the do you get returned to your loved one as a bag of compost to go in their garden? Is that the idea? Essentially, yeah. We, you don't have to, but if you want, you can have all of the compost uh, back. And th- it's around again. We're sticking imperial five hundred pounds of compost. That is a lot of compost. You've got the initial cost of the funeral, but then you have got to take into account that you do get a re-turfed garden afterwards. So it's six <laughs> of one, half dozen of the other, isn't it? Well, she was telling me some of the lovely things that people have done with it. And actually, I, I was thinking, God, that is really nice. So there was one family who took the compost from their dad, you know, and then they planted a load of trees around their house. And the idea was that um, their dad was protecting their their home. He helped mm. grow those trees. So rather than sort of having them sitting on a, in an urn on a mantelpiece, you know, it's something a little bit, you know, there's something about it that I quite liked. She sort of talked me round to it. I thought, oh yeah, no, I quite like it. I that. like it. I like it. I just, I just, I suppose what makes me feel uneasy about it is that it involves so much human intervention that it feels more artificial than literally digging a hole and sticking a body in it and putting them under a tree. So that even if there is damage to the environment by doing that, which I accept, it's the fact that you've created this slightly odd process, which which feels like something, you know, in itself not very natural to facilitate the idea of it being natural. Like it feels less natural than just digging a hole, doesn't it? That's the thing. Mm. No, I know what you mean, because it is, you know, it's a it is a more sort of scientific led process. Like, you know, things will naturally compost, but we compost stuff in the garden. We do it in a way to make it more efficient and more effective. That's that's basically yeah. what you're doing. So the actual science behind it is quite well established you remember foot and mouth and all that kind of stuff they actually Mm. use this process um to decompose and compost large amounts of cows as quickly and as efficiently as possible and actually the scientists that were involved in that process that talk about the way that they compost human bodies they don't think that the way these guys do it is actually all that efficient but actually you're not looking at doing it efficiently you're looking at doing it in a way that's kind of feels respectful and yeah Yeah. and there's a level of of dignity there the other thing as well is that it is a scientific process but at least you know compared to cryogenic freezing i know a bit about this because we did a retrospectus on it you are not then entrusting your body to a company for decades 
and the company might go bust or, you know, there might be a power cut. I mean, in this scenario, you've only got 60 days. So you can probably trust, can't you, from the date of death, they'll still be around 60 days later. So that feels like, you know, what you, what you think is going to happen to your body is indeed what is going to happen. Yeah, you know that you're going to end up in the ground growing things, maybe tomatoes, Ollie, or sweet corn. Who knows? Oh, that's a point, isn't it? People probably have grown food from their parents. I wouldn't want to eat those. I mean, what, why is it? Why why would it be any different from you know putting horse shit on your food? Because the horse isn't dead. Because the horse isn't dead. If I knew the horse and the horse was dead, it would be the same. It's the fact like the person you know is growing the tomatoes is a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, imagine being at that dinner party. <laughs> yeah, these tomatoes are delicious. Oh yeah, my my husband grew those. <laughs> It's interesting that environmental concerns, by the way, are coming up month after month. Because we had the whole business with the environmental side effects of NFTs last month. Mm. Would you like to know what Green Crusader Ollie Beard <laughs> is going to be looking into for next month's challenge? Is it another green thing? Sort of, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it's from Oscar in Preston, uh, who says, I just saw potato milk in the aisles of Waitrose. Oh, God. This is reportage, Ollie, from the streets of Preston. Yeah. <laughs> this is happening. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I would love to hear Ollie's take on the vegan milk takeover. Can Ollie investigate what is in this stuff? Well, potato. There we go. I, I mean, actually, to be fair, anyone can actually look at the side of a carton, can't they, and see what's in it. But it is quite surprising what's in it. I think that's his point. Like People think of vegan milk as an alternative to milk. Mm. But actually, it's kind of like it's like water and rapeseed oil and stuff. Well, in my head, like almond milk and things like that, they just squeeze nuts, right? I mean, that surely that's how it works. No, that's almond butter. Squeeze nut. Right, I see. Oh, I see. Okay, so they kind of, well, I guess this is what I'm going to go and find out. Well, you're not going to just find out, Ollie, because, you know, <laughs> oh. frankly, we we couldn't really ask you to put your money where your mouth was when it came to body composting. <laughs> we can get you back on track in some first-hand experience with this. So what I would like you to do by next month, Ollie, is to make your own milk. Hang on, just to be clear, make my own vegan milk. Yeah, that's right. Okay, because you don't want me to turn up with my own homemade milk, Ollie, man. That would be, well, that's... <laughs> you wouldn't want to drink it, put it that way. Right, well, all that remains in this section is to thank our sponsors, Manscaped, uh, because uh, we may have been talking about death, but spring has sprung. Time for a, a spring clean, uh, and where better to clean out than your balls and, and, and testes? With Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. You implying I've got a dusty crotch, Ollie man? <laughs> the lawnmower 4.0 really lives up to its name in spring, of course. Um, because you can be using a lawnmower in the shower in the morning and then a real lawnmower out in the garden in the afternoon. Trim your pubes as you plant those tulips. Yeah, the lawnmower 4.0 is a real pube assassin that. I might actually try it on my garden and see if it works on the grass. I'm sure it would do, because it can it can chew through my, you know, bits. Not through my bits. Yes. It can chew through the hair on my bits. You can also get the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, the Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs and a travel bag to hold all your goodies if you head over now to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code MAN. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. It's worth it just for the cologne. Seriously, the cologne smells amazing. Uh, as do you, Ollie, I assume, but I'm pleased to say that we're working remotely. Smell you later. <laughs> Thank you.
Coming up next, a man with his own stories to tell about winter sport, my guest Adam Campbell. Uh, but first, our record of the month, and it's this by Gang of Youths. It's called In the Wake of Your Leave. The video is superb. Check out modernman.co.uk to watch that, uh, where you can also send us a challenge for Ollie for next month's show. streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Now, time to meet Adam Campbell. His is a story of incredible resilience, uh, and it does include some intense moments, and it goes to some dark places. Check the show notes for more information. Adam is Canadian, as you'll hear, but he had a very global upbringing, a childhood in Nigeria, summers spent in Spain, uh, which led to lots of swimming, hiking, skiing. He is a serious outdoor sportsman. He's trained with the Canadian triathlon team and been their national team manager. He's competed at the world championships in mountain running and been a professional trail runner and ultra runner. And he's also a qualified lawyer, the kind of high-performing achiever it is hard to keep up with. But he did have a long-term relationship with Olympic triathlete Lauren Groves. And when that ended, he met Laura. I moved to a town called Canmore, which is right in the, the foothills of the Rockies. And I, I, I went online dating uh, and I saw this, this photo of this really beautiful woman um, who was clearly also very athletic and into mountain sports. Um, and she was a, a medical resident in anesthesia. And I saw that we had some mutual friends. And so I messaged one of my mutual friends and I was like, hey, I saw this really like, you know, attractive woman uh, online. Do you know her? Do you think she's cool? And if you do, would you mind sort of just giving her a little nudge to, to, to maybe chat with me? He's like, oh, actually, yeah, you guys would probably be really well suited. And so finally, I, I did hear back from her and we ended up uh, meeting for a beer. She almost bailed on our date because she'd just come off a... Um, like a 26-hour shift and was just like absolutely exhausted but for whatever reason chose to to come and meet me and I remember instantly seeing her and being like oh she's even more beautiful in person and it was one of those where you know we start by having a beer end up having you know two or three and ended up grabbing coffee the next morning and uh, yeah just a really deep instant connection. You just knew? Instantly knew for sure. Her dad was a mountaineer, and so she grew up hiking in the mountains, and she was a competitive rock climber when she was young. And one of our first dates was actually going backcountry skiing. Laura's dad had passed away a number of years prior um, to me meeting her, 
We found all of his old mountaineering books and we tried to repeat a lot of the routes that he'd climbed as well. So her and I started to do more of this sort of mountaineering together. It still took a little bit of time for her and I to, to connect. She was getting out of a long-term relationship. I was still struggling with my separation from Lauren. And so even though we had this like really deep connection, it was still a little bit of um, challenge for both of us to really commit to each other fully. But I went out and I tried to do this big link up of 14 peaks in an area called Rogers Pass, British Columbia. And when I was out doing this sort of mountaineering speed traverse, I pulled off a block and I fell 200 feet off wow. uh, the side of a, a mountain. I was doing this with two partners. We were soloing, so we didn't we didn't have ropes on. But when they saw me fall, um, they thought that they were coming for a body recovery uh, when they sort of scrambled their way back down the mountains. And fortunately, we had sort of stacked a few things in our favor. Like we looked at the weather conditions carefully prior to doing this. We had emergency locator beacons with us, so they were able to find us really quickly. And luckily it wasn't a straight fall. I tumbled down a series of ledges and I was wearing a helmet at the time. And um, But I ended up breaking my back and my lower hip. And I had deep lacerations across my body and um, ended up having to get helicoptered out of the mountains to hospital. And Laura found out about this accident and she got in a car right away. And it was about a five hour drive to where I was. That dramatically changed my life because here I was, somebody, you know, really, really physically competent and capable in the mountains, um, instantly being deeply vulnerable. Like, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to walk again. Um, I was really, really scared. And I was entirely reliant on the nursing staff for really, really basic functions. Like, I literally couldn't wipe my own ass. Like, I was in that, that bad of a state. Was that the first serious injury of any kind you'd had? I mean, of that nature, yeah. So, I mean, I'd had, you know, minor, like, scrapes and bruises, but, uh, you know, falling a few hundred feet off a mountain is, you know, something that ho hopefully never, never happens again. Do you remember Laura coming to you in the hospital? Uh, I was in and out of consciousness uh, through that entire time. Um, but when I came to, Laura was there, as well as my mom and Laura's mom. And uh, that whole incident kind of... It was a bit of a wake-up call for both Laura and I, and we instantly realized, like, what are we doing here? Like, why are we not committing to each other? We both clearly love each other. Um, so in those moment, in that moment of, you know, like deep, deep trauma and shock, there was a lot of clarity about what really matters. Basically, the bullshit, you know, kind of fades away. And we're like, why are we not, you know, doing a full dive into this? And so we did. Um, and our, our love and our relationship really blossomed in, in a really wonderful way. And she ended up taking a month off of her residency and helped care for me. I was in a wheelchair for a couple months. Um, you know, I had to relearn how to walk and do really basic functions. Was that quite difficult then when people asked you the question that people always ask of any married couple of like, you know, when did he propose? The story is yeah. like, you know, I didn't really propose. We had a logistical conversation based around our obvious, <laughs> deep, intense relationship when I was holed up in hospital, having nearly died. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, we, I did end up proposing um, a, a few months later. Uh, so Laura's going to go work at a, a clinic in Guatemala um, a couple months after my accident. And I joined her uh, three weeks later and I was starting to walk again at this point. And so we sort of traveled around Guatemala together for a couple months. 
And uh, after that, we went to a friend's wedding in Hawaii. And we were uh, on Waimea Bay, which is in, on the North Shore of Oahu. Uh, and we, we camped. Uh, we were staying in tents. And, and it was just this wonderful time. You know, we were swimming in the ocean. And I was, as I said, I was starting to, to hike again and walk a little bit. And um, I proposed to her on Waimea Bay um, the day before her friend's wedding. Just as well she didn't say no yeah. just before her friend's wedding. That would yeah, have been awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also remember I had uh, I had the uh, the engagement ring in my in my pocket of my my board shorts, and we were body surfing. And I remember just like the entire time, sort of having my hand on my on my pocket, <laughs> terrified that I was going to lose this ring. So, but then you settled in Canmore. What was it like the first time when you started going back outdoors again properly, having had that kind of experience? I mean, I, I went back into the mountains uh, almost right away. Um, so it, it was actually interesting, though, because I Laura and I had spent all, all of our time, and I primarily sort of moved through the mountains. And a large part of my recovery was actually just sitting in the mountains and sitting outside and sketching um, and sort of looking at the mountains in a really different way. Because for my entire life, the, the only real emotional outlet that I had was movement and physical activity. And in this time of like deep trauma and fear, really, I lost my emotional outlet. And so I realized just how um, singularly focused I'd been. And I realized that I needed to develop bigger coping mechanisms. And I also had this sort of this false sense that, you know, I'm this, uh, you know, solitary mountain man. You know, I'm uh, this strong, independent person. And I also realized the fallacy of that. Because of the awesome power of nature and the arbitrary nature of it sometimes. And yet, you know, your decision to go straight back out there and start sketching it and feeling comfortable in this place that had brought you a lot of pain, mm -hmm. physical pain, is, yeah. is quite an interesting one. Some people would have, you know, never ventured out again. Yeah, but I mean... You know, it's ultimately, it's not it's not the mountains' fault. You know, like the mountains aren't out to get you. You know, the mountains are one reason why they're so awe-inspiring is because they are also quite dangerous. So Laura became a doctor in Camor. I started a, a, a law practice in Camor, and we we bought a home there, and we got settled in town. And, you know, got a dog, and you know, I was still semi-professional athlete as well. Uh, through all this, I was you know, I was still able to get back in, um, to a, a decent level of, of athletic performance. And so Laura and I, in the winters, we like to go ski touring in the mountains, like to go backcountry skiing, and I like ice climbing. And January 2020, I agreed to meet up with a friend of mine who's a very well-known uh, ski guide uh, in town. Um, and we wanted to go check out a new area um, to go backcountry skiing in, um, an area neither one of us had been to. What's backcountry skiing? It means you're going to an area outside of a ski resort area um, so you're you're kind of you know choosing your own path in, in the mountains and so we wanted to go check out this alpine bowl that we that we'd seen um, images of and that we'd heard might might have some good skiing potential in it so you drive presumably initially some distance and there's no one there when you get out your car and start walking oh yeah no no exactly yeah so this is this is very remote like you're you're well away from cell signal you're like you're deep in the canadian wilderness here so it's you laura and kevin kind of having fun for a few hours and then you're going to go back home is the idea yeah because the snow is good i'd actually taken the morning off work 
Laura had finished her her rounds for the day, and so you know she had the afternoon off as well. And so we skied up and we we did a few test runs in different areas, and we sort of liked what we were seeing, but we were we were like we we knew that it was um, we needed to be quite cautious. And so we skied for a few hours, and we had we had a lot of fun. And finally, you know, we decided, you know, the, the winds really started to pick up and it was really, really cold that day. It was below minus 15 Celsius with like really, really strong winds. You know, in, in, De- in January in the Canadian Rockies, you don't have that much daylight. So you want to get out of there relatively early. So we were getting ready to ski out and um, sort of one of the big honors in, in backcountry skiing or skiing this is giving somebody first tracks. You know, so you get the fresh snow, you've got this really beautiful canvas of, of white untracked snow to ski and so we were doing like small little yo-yo loops where we were. And so we'd ski down, put our skis back on, hike back up and sort of ski a few laps. And um, so we gave Laura first tracks down the mountain. And, uh, you know, she had a great time. You know, skiing is like really beautiful uh, powder run. Um, and then Kevin went next. And we when we were up there, you sort of identify safe places to meet, um, sort of away, tucked away from potential hazards and so we'd identified uh, like a clump of trees at the bottom of the run and it was maybe about a 400 meter uh, run so 1200 feet or so so a, a decent length run um, a, a solid pitch and so Laura skied first and then uh, we were going one at a time um, Kevin skied second and as Kevin went to ski I moved forward to watch Kevin ski because he's a, a really beautiful skier and I wanted to see what was going on and as I stepped forward um, to watch him I must have stepped on a one of these small wind pockets because instantly the entire slope I was standing on um, avalanched at my feet and started to to go. So I was standing on this slab and the whole slope ripped at my feet. And I um, I put my ski poles in and I was able to self-arrest on my ski poles. So I stopped myself in the slope from getting caught in the avalanche because I was standing right on top of it. So I kind of jumped off it self-arrested and I started yelling avalanche. So at this point you know that Kevin and Laura are underneath you? They're underneath me, exactly. So this entire face, so it was maybe about 100 meters, so 300 or 400 feet wide, uh, face below me ripped and it was about a meter deep of snow, um, 80 meters across, ripped down this entire slope and so went over 400 meters down the valley. So it's, it was a lot of snow. Um, what was your first thought? I just start yelling avalanche as loud as I can. Um, and then I was in total shock that this had just happened. Um, but, you know, we as I said, we'd identified a safe area. But my first thought was I need to get down to them uh, because I was above them. I need to make sure that they're safe. But there's also a chance that you can trigger a secondary slide. And so I moved um, as quickly as I could over to the other side of the ridge so I wouldn't trigger a secondary avalanche on top of them. When I got down there, I saw Kevin in... Um, I was like, holy crap, that was a huge avalanche. And I was like, do you see Laura? He's like, yeah, I saw her go into the trees. Just start yelling her name. And so we start yelling Laura. And um, we looked over and sort of where um, where she was, all the trees had been destroyed and taken out by the avalanche. So we quickly pulled out our, our beacons and we started performing um, a beacon search with these avalanche devices. It was quite a complex um, search because what happened is there was this this slope and then there was a creek below it. And we noticed that we were getting pulled in towards the creek and that's called a a terrain trap. Um, So it's a natural feature that is, uh, you know, that that can entrap somebody. 
And um, the best reading that we got on our beacon was over four meters. And so that meant that Laura was buried more than four meters below the snow. You go into an emergency adrenaline situation, you don't allow yourself to, to really think about the situation. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, it, it's, it's business. Uh, you know, you need to, to do what you need, you need to do. And of course, of course I was on the verge of panicking. Like, you know, like my wife was, was buried, um, but you, you have one job and that's to, to get her out. Because every second can count. Every second counts. The first, the first ten or fifteen minutes of being buried um, are the most important. You know, you're sort of taught that when you get caught in an avalanche, you know, you try to you try to swim and you try to, to create little air pockets um, around your mouth if you can um, to to give yourself room to be able to air uh, to breathe so you don't suffocate when you're trapped in snow. But I also knew that you know a four meter burial is is really really severe. Um, so you also carry little avalanche shovels with you. So the second this happened, you know, I deploy the emergency radio calling for help. So that means an air ambulance or something is on its way straight away. You hope. You hope. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that doesn't matter. Like, are we had to get Laura out? You know, because there's there's only a limited number of you know mountain rescue specialists in the Canadian Rockies. They might be dealing with another incident somewhere else as well. It's not like in the French Alps where there's, you know, hundreds of these helicopters flying around. You know, there's a handful of them. And it's a huge area. Like, it's massive, like thousands and thousands of kilometers that they're dealing with. So you actually end up having to... We started having to dig about 10 meters out to tunnel into where she was. And, you know, just knowing that every minute is crucial at this point. When snow avalanches, um, it, it sets and it solidifies really quickly. So it, it's, it's not like soft, light, fluffy snow. It's really rock hard, mm-hmm. really difficult to shovel. And so Kevin, you know, like I'm, I'm basically, at this point, I'm starting to lose my shit. You know, like I'm screaming and, uh, you know, digging frantically. Because you know as well, presumably, that the danger for someone underneath that, you talked about the air pockets, but I presume it's also the the cold right you've got something that cold on your face you know, hypothermia is a, is a real issue but at the same time hypothermia can also um it can preserve people mm. um you know there's there are circumstances of people whose core temperatures uh drop dramatically and it can actually people have survived quite long time to really deep cold exposure because it stops you know it, it, it slows your heart rate down and it, it, these are you know these are all things that you kind of know but ultimately the only thing that really matters is getting to laura you know, Kevin was giving me tasks uh, and really keeping me task focused, you know, telling me, you know, we have to, you know, you know, dig hard for a minute, you know, and you know, those sorts of things. Just giving, giving me small jobs to keep my mind occupied so that I wasn't, that I didn't go into full panic mode. Um, and after about 40 minutes, we got to Laura and um, when we got to her, we, her, her, her feet and her skis were upslope. So we, we got to her face um and uh, she was she was really blue, and Kevin was able to to remove the snow from her airway and started, um, and he checked her pulse, and he lied to me and told me that he felt a pulse, um, which he, he didn't. Um, but it took us another forty minutes um, to fully dig Laura out from from where she was, because you're also, as I said, trying not to bury yourself in in this in this huge hole. So it took us almost an hour and a half to get to Laura. Had that lie been effective? When, when he said that she had a pulse, was that something that kept you going at that moment? Yeah, it, it did for sure. It absolutely did. But I mean, I, I would have kept going anyway. 
you know, like ultimately, you know, it's your, it's your wife, you know, like it's your, it's the person that you love. Um, and it was, it was really, really hard to see her uh, in that state. And because, you know, she hated being cold and she just looked so cold. And, and I hated seeing that. What, what was really difficult is when we finally dug her out fully, um, removing her from the hole because I had to, to pull her out of this like snow tomb that she was in. The only way I could do it was I had to like stand up slope, pull her up my body. And um, you know, it's, she felt quite lifeless at that point. And that was really hard and there were, we were getting no response. And so I, um, you know, once we once we got her out, he did everything to try to keep her warm. You know, like I took out all the all the jackets that I had in my in my pack. Uh, you know, I had an emergency blanket with me, and uh, we'd started communicating at this point with the the search and rescue crew, saying that this was like a real emergency that we needed help. And when the search and rescue crew came, um, it was actually two friends of mine um, who who landed, and seeing the look on their faces when they saw the situation was. Hmm. You know, it, it was horrible, um, and uh, so they, they they finally came in and they they removed Laura from the situation. So you get you get airlifted under the helicopter. So they they brought Laura back to the highway where there was a an ambulance waiting for her, and they came back and got Kevin and me. And when hmm. the helicopter finally lifted me out of the area, I just, I, I fully collapsed. I just started screaming and shouting in the air as I was being lifted under his helicopter. And when it landed um, on the highway near our car, I just, I just collapsed into a total heap of, I was, I, was, I, 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 I collapsed mentally at that point. And then I found out that um, they'd actually taken Laura to Calgary, which is a three-hour drive away um, by air ambulance. And what that meant, though, is that there was a theoretical chance that she was still alive. Still to come, what happened in Calgary and how Adam lives with the guilt that he triggered that avalanche. That's when the modern man returns, after this. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever been in a situation where something the way that you're feeling is interfered with your happiness or is stopping you achieving things you want to get done. I, I know that's happened to me. I've uh, My mental health has stopped me from working as well as I could do at work. It, it's just made me not enjoy things in the past. And it took for me to get help, which I was lucky enough to be able to do. Well, there's a slightly different way that you can do things. And that's with better help. They're a service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, what we're not talking about is a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional therapy done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, some of which might not be available to you where you live. It's available worldwide as well. You can log into your account anytime 
and send a message to your therapist and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response from them. You can also schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them and you don't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with rubbish magazines on the table. As well as that, it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and if you need it, financial aid is available. Visit betterhelp.com, that's H-E-L-P, and you can join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Also, good news, there's a special offer for Modern Man listeners. Of course, you can get 10% off with your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash modern man. That's M-A-N-N. I know, man fans, shopping for clothes can be a hassle. How it looks on the model isn't always exactly how it's going to look on you. You never know how things will fit, and there is just so much choice. Well, that is where Stitch Fix come in. They send someone, an actual living human, out to shop for you. Someone who knows your size, what you do and don't like to wear, and how much you like to spend on each item. Stitch Fix, quite simply, take the pain out of shopping for clothes. The outfits arrive at your door a few days later, and you get to try everything on at home, decide what to keep, and then send anything else back. It's so easy. Case in point, producer Matt needed an outfit for the British Podcast Awards last year, as he'd already worn his wedding suit for the past three, and he gave Stitch Fix a whirl. And he'd never look so dapper. Isn't that right, Matt? Yes! You pay just £10 each time you order, which is credited towards the items you keep. And you'll get 20% off when you keep all five items. There's no subscription required, plus shipping returns and exchanges are easy and free. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash M-A-N-N and get 20% off when you keep all five items. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash man. Now, back to my interview with Adam. And just hours after digging his wife, Laura, out from under an avalanche that he triggered, Adam's received news that she's been flown to a hospital three hours' drive away. So, he has some phone calls to make. I called my friend Andy, who's a, a doctor in Camor, and I asked him if he would drive me to the hospital that we'd had this bad accident. Um, and he instantly said yes, because I knew I wasn't in any kind of state to, to drive myself. Um, Laura's mom um, had actually, she had sort of Laura's adventurous spirit, and she just set off on a trip to Colombia. Um, and so she was on the plane to Colombia uh, at the time. Um, so you couldn't reach her. So I couldn't reach her. Exactly. Uh, so I called Laura's brother in Vancouver. Um, and I was like, Hey, there's been a horrible accident. Uh, I don't know whether Laura is alive or not. And that was one of the worst phone calls I've ever had to make in my life. Um, they're just not words that come easily. No, it's just not something you ever think you have to tell somebody. Um, you know, and I felt quite a lot of guilt because I, I triggered the avalanche. You knew that then? Oh, I mean, it was, yeah, you yeah, know, I mean, I knew I triggered it. I mean, it was, I was standing on the slope that triggered it. Like, I, I knew it was me that triggered it. So we, we drove the, you know, the three hours to the hospital. And when we got there, the emergency doctor said that uh, they, they were able to revive a pulse. Um, but, you know, she was, she was not conscious. There was some internal damage and they weren't entirely sure what was going to happen with her. And the next few hours are going to be fairly crucial. Um, and they didn't know if she had any brain activity or not. And people started coming to the hospital. And 
in the middle of the night, the the doctor came in and said that, um, you know, even though they're able to get a pulse, uh, basically Laura's bowels had died um, and their words were that that's in- incompatible with life. And so they ultimately weren't going to be able to save her. Um, so they were essentially going to, you know, they were going to make her comfortable, uh, but she was going to, they weren't going to be able to save her. Sorry. It's okay. Um, um, and, you know, so, but we were free to go and, you know, basically sit with her as she died. Um, and so we did, um, you know, we all went out and sat around and sort of, you know, held her and, and just talk to her and try to just make her comfortable. Um, and uh, do you remember what you said? Uh, you know, just you know, telling her how, how much I loved her and that it was okay, but she had to go. Um, you know, understood. And just uh, you know, told her everything would be okay. Um, and her and I, you know, because she was because she was a doctor and you know worked in hospitals, you know, we we talked quite a lot about about death. Um, it was a reality for her on a day day basis. You know, she'd have to tell patients that they they were terminal. She'd sat with people as they died, um, mm-hmm. and you know, we we talked a lot about like the medicalization of death. And so I, I knew sort of what Laura's stance was on these things, and you know, she really believed in like dignity and dying and giving people dignity and. So you know, we try to have as much like dignity in the moment, uh, and but during this time, um, Laura's mom had uh, landed in Colombia, and um, I f- we figured out what hotel she was staying in, and I was able to call the hotel, uh, and I, I speak some Spanish, and so it, it, even though it was like two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning, I was able to I, I told the hotel, but they needed to wake her up. And we booked Laura's mom a plane ticket back to Canada. And so I talked to her. I was like, Becky, there's been a horrible accident. You need to get on a plane now. We booked you a plane ticket home. And, um, you know, so as Laura's mom was was flying back, uh, you know, they, they the doctors had said Laura would probably, you know, be dead after a couple hours. Um, and, you know, the morning came, you know, a couple hours passed. Laura was still alive. There was still a heartbeat, still a slight heartbeat. And we were just sort of watching the heart rate monitor go. And finally, you know, sort of as the day went on, we were sort of tracking Laura's mom's flight because we really wanted her to be able to say goodbye to Laura or at least be able to speak to her. Um, Because Laura's dad had died unexpectedly while they were in South Africa and they weren't able to say goodbye. And I know that that really, really had a deep impact on uh, on Laura and her mom and, and brother. All of a sudden, Laura's heart rates really started to crash. And so I said, start calling Becky, start calling Becky. And so as Laura's mom's flight was landing, um, we were able to get her on the phone. She answered the phone and, um, and she was able to uh, basically say goodbye to Laura. And as she was saying goodbye, Laura's, um, Laura's heart stopped beating and she was declared dead. So her wow. mom was at least able to say goodbye to her. Um, and it's those differences that really do make a difference, isn't it? I mean, I, I hope so. Uh, you know, I, I hope it helped Laura's mom to some degree. I hope it helped Laura. I hope Laura heard it. Um, it felt like it did. Um, it felt important. And I was really, really grateful for the hospital staff um, that allowed us to have so many people around Laura as she died. Because I do think, um, I do think that was quite therapeutic. Um, and, and for you, I mean, the surreality of the day the intense drama 
the fact that so much of it happened outdoors and then involved so much adrenaline, the fact that it was just a casual day, you know, like you said, where you'd both yeah, been working and then decided to go out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when did you next go to sleep? I mean, presumably you didn't sleep throughout that whole period. And then when you did, was it in your bed at home? Um, you know, going home was like a huge, you know, gut punch because, you know, the entire place is just surrounded but, you know, like Laura's retainer was still by the bed, you know, like her bedside light where their book was sitting there, like all of her toiletries were out, you know, hairbrush and everything. And the entire place was, you know, like, I, I don't really care like what, you know, color our walls are painted and stuff, you know, so it was all like Laura's touch everywhere. And so it felt surreal to, to get into bed and to not have her there. And um, so I, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, sleep, sleep was not really a reality for, for months um, after the accident. Uh, you know, I would sleep here and there, but I really didn't sleep much at all. But was it comforting <laughs> in those early stages to be around her stuff? Or was it triggering or, or both? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was both. It was both. Uh, you know, the strangest things would just bring me to my knees. Uh, but at the same time, I also didn't want to get rid of anything. Um, and I, I didn't for you know, like over a year. I remember I'd sort of be out and, uh, you know, Camor is a small town, you know, it's 15,000 people. And, you know, Laura and I were sort of known members of the community and, and everybody in town knew what had happened. And so I remember sort of I'd be walking down the street and I would have some sort of a triggering moment and I would just sort of collapse to my knees, uh, just in, in tears at something, you know, some small memory literally just going past you know shops that you went to or places you'd been or whatever yeah exactly yeah like a restaurant we might have been to or you know just reading something and also you know it, it was really strange to sort of be walking through the community where everybody knew what had happened you know and so some people would have like this deep empathy other people wouldn't know what to say you know i called it having sad eyes yes. you know like people would sort of look at you and uh with this look of like i don't know what the heck to say to you what did you want people to say to you at the time, I, I don't know. I mean, in, in you know, in in retrospect, uh, I think just saying, "Hey, I'm really sorry for what you've gone through," would have mm -hmm. been would have been enough. But you know, at that time, uh, I remember it was also we went through this incredibly deep cold snap. Uh, we ended up having it was like almost six weeks of you know below minus twenty Celsius temperatures and like just absolute frigid temps. They just go for these like long walks uh, and just numb you know to to the world and uh, i remember walking by the river and you know the river had like ice flows in it and just sort of looking at the river and just thinking how much easier it'd be if i just jumped and then um you know sort of having a second thought and catching myself and thinking no i, I can't do that that would just hurt everybody even more if i did that it would just be you know numbing the pain and i kind of need to to sit with this and also part of it was also i just need to like punish myself for what i've done for killing your wife and not being able to rescue her I was about um, to ask you about that. You didn't kill your wife. You were out having, you know, a sporting afternoon, which you'd all consented and an accident happened. But how long did it take you to come round to that realization? How long were you feeling guilty? Well, I mean, I, you know, to some degree, I still feel guilty because, you know, we, we all kind of jointly made a few mistakes on the day uh, that, you know, you can look back on. I mean, we went out on like a, you know, in a storm avalanche day, like you don't have to go into the mountains. So that's, you know, an initial mistake we were out there you know you don't have to do these things um but it was laura's choice too is my point you know she, oh, she, oh no oh uh, no absolutely 100 percent. i mean i mean just sort of you know, like playing through the no no i want you to be honest yeah yeah you know i just yeah, i'm trying to um, suppress the bit of me that wants to reach out and, <laughs> and hug you and say well it's not your fault yeah. 
Well, no, it, it, it's not. But um, where we were skiing, um, you know, looking back on it, the feature that I stepped onto, we hadn't seen reaction on that kind of a feature up to that moment. Um, and so I maybe got a bit complacent because it is something that is a known avalanche trigger. And I knew that like from all my training and from my experience in time in the mountains, like I knew that that like the feature that I stepped onto was a potential avalanche trigger, but because we hadn't seen anything to suggest that that was going to be reactive to that point, Hmm. I let my guard down. Um, And so I wasn't quite as careful as I should have been. It's interesting, isn't it? That in, in both accidents that you've described, there is a sense maybe that experience leads to complacency rather than caution, which is the opposite of what's supposed to happen when you have training. You've kind of described feeling a bit like because you know what you're doing, you're more likely to feel autonomous. Um, to, yeah, to some degree. I mean, I, but there's also just like an exposure factor. The, just the sheer amount of time mm. in a dangerous environment, your awe, you've, you know, instantly the odds of an accident happening increase just by nature of spending more time in the mountains. And I spend a lot of time in the mountains in dangerous terrain. So of course the odds of an accident happening increase just by nature of that, because you can't control for all the variables. You can try to mitigate the risk as best as possible, but you can't possibly eliminate risk in those environments. You know, whether you admit it or not, you, you have to accept uh, by going into the mountains and you, you have, you know, Laura and I accepted that we were in avalanche terrain, um, you know, and we sort of, the risk reward is that, you know, you get a lot of pleasure in those places. You know, you see a lot of beauty. The The feeling of skiing an untracked powder run is, you know, it's akin to flying. Like it's a really wonderful, uh, very peaceful, serene experience. The, the connection that Laura and I got to have by climbing in these remote mountain environments together, like, you know, basically you're, when you're climbing, um, you know, and you're feeding the rope out to each other, you're literally looking after each other's lives. Very few people get to experience that with their partner. And we also just got to see incredible beauty and in, in things that, you know, not many people in the world get to experience. You know, so in one regards, you've got, you've got that aspect of it, but on the, the, the deal with the devil there is, is it's dangerous. Um, you could potentially really hurt yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and death is a, is a reality in those places. You know, the, the, basically it was like worst case scenario on top of worst case scenario that happened. Um, and really, and it was something that really messed with me is I should not have survived my mountaineering accident. I should not have survived. I got about as lucky as you could possibly get in a very, very, very bad situation. Laura got as unlucky as you could possibly get in a very, very, very bad situation. And that just didn't make sense. Well, again, some people would say, having had this kind of experience, I mean, I know I said this to you about the first accident. Mm -hmm. They would have had this kind of experience and thought, well, the answer is I am not going to step outside my house, but I'm certainly not going to get up to that kind of thing again. But that wasn't Mm -hmm. your reaction. No, I mean, I, I ended up going back out backcountry skiing a week later and some people may say, well, you're, you're an addict, like what's, what's wrong, uh, what's wrong with you. But it's also, it is a place of deep healing and, um, you know, and maybe there is a form of, uh, 
trauma exposure to it. Um, you know, and I started in very, very simple terrain, uh, you know, like more like cross country skiing where there's no avalanche risk and progressing back into bigger terrain. You know, I, I also felt like a really deep connection to Laura in those places. And I really mm. felt like, a, you know, almost like a spiritual connection with her in those, in those moments. And there's a very meditative feeling to it, but there's also just like a deep beauty in it. And, you know, I sort of feel her presence in those moments of like beauty and awe. Is there a burden as well for you in being in your local community known as an athlete? Because, you know, you, you talked earlier about how you had this first accident and then this had this kind of, albeit aided by Laura, but this sort of superhuman recovery where you'd imagine people might come up to you and say, oh, that's so inspiring. You know, you're a triathlete and you've done all these things. How inspiring. Was there a pressure to have that kind of superhuman response to grief? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really really good uh, insightful question. Um, uh, for sure, I definitely do think that there was a sense in me that wanted to like be better at grief than other people. Um, and you no, know, it's it's and it's interesting because one of the things I talked to with my therapist um, was you can't high performance grief. You know, what I mean, like there is. You know, whereas with a lot of, um, you know, sports performances, you set this like clear outcome um, and then you you work backwards towards it. And there is no there is no finish line with grief. Like it's just something that you learn to integrate into your life, but you're never done with it. I will constantly for the rest of my life deal with the fact that, you know, Laura is is dead, you know, like she's not around. So there is no ultimate finish line with it. So instead, it's learning to to manage it, um, to sort of integrate it and still honor her while not just constantly being weighed down. Um, I mean, that high performance mentality is kind of about compartmentalizing stuff, isn't it? And, and suppressing mm-hmm. certain feelings to focus on a bigger goal. Now, to get through your life, you've had to actually allow yourself, I guess, to be more vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And the vulnerability started with the accident in Rogers Pass uh, because I had to, you know, I had to accept help uh, from people. You know, as I said, like I couldn't wipe my own ass. And for somebody who the day before could r- literally run up and down mountains um, to suddenly be having to ask strangers to wipe your ass is very, very humbling and um, it requires a deep level of vulnerability. And I learned that it was okay to ask for help and to admit that you needed help. But I also knew that I needed to just sort of get outside and move a little bit. And sometimes going outside, I would go out and I would just scream. Like I would just walk outside into the forest and I would just scream. But I needed to do it. And that was sort of my, you know, it was a form of release. And like I was in a bookstore one day and I opened up a a book of poems by Leonard Cohen, you know, and the first line in the poem was give me back my beautiful wife. And like, I read that (laughs) and it just, I just collapsed to my knees and the the bookstore owner came up to me and sort of put his arms around me and just hugged me and took me into the back and gave me a cup of tea or a glass of water or something. And, you know, so just those sorts of moments. And I was like, I just, I was just okay with it. I just had to be. Have you been back to the spot where the avalanche happened? I went back the the summer after the avalanche uh, happened because Laura's skis were still buried under the snow and a bunch of her other possessions were still there. Oh, wow. So it takes until August for the snow to melt. You know, it happened in January and sort of by the end of 
the end of the summer, the snow's all melted. And so we, we hiked up into, you know, up through the forest and uh, went with a group of friends. And uh, it was really interesting to go back there because when, you know, when the avalanche happened, it was this really cold winter day where everything looked just dead. You know, it was um, really monochrome colors, black and white and gray and really cold and windy. It just sort of felt like death. And when we hiked back up in the summer, it was this completely different environment. There's all these beautiful alpine flowers up there. It was a calm, warm day, this amazing view of the whole, you know, mountain range behind us. And uh, it felt quite alive. Um, And so it was interesting to go and sort of reclaim that space from this place of death to this place of like beauty and life. Um, And there's sort of something quite like symbolic and poetic about it and we were able to find Laura's skis and I still have Laura's skis and I use them on occasion uh, myself. Could you see yourself in another relationship? I mean I, I am in another relationship. <laughs> I've, I've started seeing somebody else um, and it's it's wonderful and it's, it's a challenge for sure. It's a you know it's um, she's a very understanding person and really really kind and empathetic and knows what I've gone through and uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Laura and she allows me to make space for Laura in my life. But at the same time, you know, learning how to to sort of live a new um, relationship with somebody and to not compare her, uh, to understand that this is a new, a new path. Um, it's a new life um, is also really, it's important. It's something I'm learning how to do. Uh, and ultimately, I think, you know, Laura uh, would want me to be happy and would want me to keep living life. And I'm, I'm lucky that I have um, this new relationship happening at the moment and it's, it's comforting and, um, yeah, it, it, it is exciting in a lot of ways. Adam Campbell. You can find him blogging on the publishing platform Ghost under the name Muddy Socks. I'll put a link in the show notes. And also in the show notes, details for the Samaritans. If, like Adam, you've considered suicide, remember there is always someone to talk to. And if you have a story you would like to share on The Modern Man, then do reach out now. Uh, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. We don't have time to respond to every email we receive, but we do read them all. And really, we love nothing more than telling your stories on this show. Still to come, in lieu of a foxhole, an epic investiture ceremony for Manbassadors. That's after this. Right, so... No Alex Fox this month, and uh, you probably don't want to hear me answering your sex questions. Well, a small portion of you probably do, but uh, let's not upset everybody else. There's enough bad things going on in the world. So I thought I would take this opportunity to uh, end this month's show, not with sex questions, but by appointing not one, not two, not three, but four manbassadors. It's like a New Year's honours list. Will you make the cut? Let's find out. Uh, first up is Dan Wigmore, who says, Ollie, I apologise for taking so long to become a recurring beer money donor. That has been rectified as of now. Uh, Dan, it's never too late. But, says Dan, I paid for my tardiness when the lady from Marrickville, just down the road from me in Sydney, got in and secured the whole of Sydney as her ambassadorship. Yeah, that was Cat. Cat is our ambassador for Sydney. Uh, awarded this time last year. So, he says, I humbly request to be made ambassador for Enmore, probably the coolest suburb in Sydney. And if that doesn't work, give me New South Wales. Uh, That's just greedy, Dan. 
I'll happily host you in Sydney, he says, when you come to town, and buy you a real-life beer. Uh, but no plans to go to Sydney at the moment, Dan, but that has swayed it. You've clinched it with that, but you're still not having New South Wales. Um, you can have Enmore, which is now surely officially the coolest suburb in Sydney. Now it has a ambassador. Uh, Lisa Cotton is next. She donated some beer money too. Uh, she says, Ollie, before I made my donation, I wrote a drunken dedication to you on Instagram under a post about your cat. Feel free to praise us wherever you like, everybody. Um, the internet's a wonderful place. Spread the love where you have the love. But uh, Apple Podcasts, preferably. <laughs> if you're going to leave us a review, put it where other people can see it and it helps boost the show up the charts. Uh, maybe not under a photo of my cat on Instagram. Uh, my cat Moon was in the video for The Sounds of Christmas, says Lisa. Oh, well, you're practically an honorary man fan. Oh, well, you're practically on... Well, you're practically an honorary man ambassador already. Uh, she's the little tabby who didn't want to be there because she hates publicity or any strangers. <laughs> That's just cats. Um, do you have a man ambassador for York? If not, I would love for my cat Philip to take the mantle. He is always there, rolling around, licking himself when I listen to your podcast. Aren't we all? I love this idea, by the way, of uh, awarding a man ambassadorship to a, an animal. I, don't, I can't remember if we've had an animal before. We haven't had a cat. This would be the first feline man ambassador, which I think opens up possibilities, both for a human man ambassador for York in the future, uh, which feels like an omission, but we don't have one, um, and also uh, for future feline man ambassadors. So congratulations, Philip. Treat yourself to a, a, a big box of Felix. Um, next, it's David, who says, I've been a man fan for a couple of years now. I've spread the man word among my friends and contribute beer money every month. Thank you. I particularly enjoy the various challenges set for Ollie Peart and the way he tackles them. Sometimes we learn something, which is a bonus. <laughs> I, th I think that is the healthiest way to think about it, David. I, I know I do. I was wondering if you have a man ambassador for Auckland in New Zealand. If not, I would like to be considered for the post. We didn't, David. We do now. It's you. Congratulations. Uh, and finally, in this epic investiture, easy for you to say, uh, Gary and Angela Cooper say, Ollie, for the past seven years, we've both lived in Shanghai, China, and the cost of a beer in our local pub is 50 yen, about £5.54 at today's rate. So we've set that up as the monthly amount, plus a one-off thank you by way of an apology for taking so long. You do not need to do that, guys. Um, but yeah, £5.54. You know, it's probably been so long since we last updated the website about the average price of a pint of beer in Britain that £5.54 probably does cover what it costs in Weatherspoons these days anyway. Uh, Gary says, I listen to your episodes whilst motorbiking to work. Some have made me laugh, some cry, and some just blurt out in an astonishment, but they're all brilliant listening. Thank you. Uh, we've had a look, and it seems there are currently no ambassadors for Shanghai, and Angela and I would be genuinely honoured to carry that role if it is still free. It is. It's yours. Congratulations. I feel like Noel Edmonds at Christmas time. We should do this again. Uh, if you would like to be a man ambassador, then buy us a beer, drop us a line. All the details are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And have no fear, the foxhole will return next month. Until then, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on April the 10th. Hold up. 